You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole. I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is every single week, back from the future, Christy Morris. Or wait, are you back from the future, or are you back to the future, or are you back to the past, or the bad past, or I don't, I don't know, I'm confused. I'm in the alternate timeline. You know, we... Uh, oh, yeah. oh. We oh, stole that's the one the where DeLorean. Biff is president. Yeah. Yeah, the mm, casino okay. is awesome. Mm, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yes. I mean, uh, you could say awesome. I mean, we should say awesome. Biff could be listening. So we'll call <laughs> <Right>. it awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to continue our retrospective tonight on Back to the Future. And, of course, we're at part two, which really is truly a part two. Um, so we'll we'll talk all about it. But before we dive in, wanted to first thank a quick reviewer. We got a new review there on Apple Podcasts, and they said, fantastic. And the name is E-N-D-R-N-E. So I'm not sure how exactly you'd say that. You know, usernames can always be interesting. But they said, amazing stuff. I don't follow all of these nerddoms, but you... Covered all of the ones I love. Thanks a ton. Well, we appreciate that. And uh, hopefully we've introduced you some new fandoms. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I did uh, also retweet this on my Twitter to say thank you. So thank you for the five-star review. And thank you for reviews, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes a huge difference to how the show does. You know, actually, Chrissy, I didn't know if you knew this, but in the film reviews of all time, like they have a... A film review section and and we're in the all-time section i think we're like number 43 or something you know uh so yeah we're in there with uh some great podcasts um some that people might know uh things like star wars explained or sky talkers or Bondcast, um things like feeling film uh you know so there's some there's some great company that we're in there uh, you know, we really want to say thank you for all that people have done for us uh, with their reviews there on Apple Podcasts. Also, uh, just interacting with us, you can find us on Twitter at the 602 Club or on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. Of course, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And then, of course, we've got the website at trek.fm as well as... You can find us there uh, on the Listeners Only Discussion Group. Uh, you can find that. It's called the Babel Conference there on Facebook. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, if you want to send us an email, go to trek.fm slash contact. Uh, and, of course, we're wherever you get your podcasts. So you don't – I mean, you have to be an Apple user. You could go uh, over to Spotify or maybe use Amazon Music or you know any of the podcatchers out there. You can find us. Uh, and last but not least, you can also support the network and make sure that this show – as well as every show keeps coming to you. We want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers that do that uh, and help us do that. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. 
They support the show through Patreon, and they've chosen as one of their perks to be an associate producer of this show. Um, so go to patreon.com slash trekfm. We really could use your help. So again, uh, every little bit does help to make sure all the shows keep coming to you, but it's pretty expensive enterprise to put all of this together. Uh, it's a big network. So if you like what we do here, you like the fact that you don't get any ads while you listen, well, that happens because of listeners like you. So again, that's patreon.com slash trek fm christy we are of course at part two of back to the future and one of the things that i thought was so interesting was uh and especially re-watching this and getting ready um was that learning especially from all the behind the scenes stuff that this was really too big for one movie um they wrote a movie that encompassed basically everything that happens in part two as well as part three and that's why we get this big split. You know, they wanted to do sequels. They wrote this sequel, and it turned out that it was actually two sequels, not just one. <laughs> yeah, and just to pick up where they left off, I mean, there's a million different directions you could go with something's got to be done about your kids. We're going to the future. It's so open-ended. So I, right. I do like that they picked up exactly at that scene even to then mm-hmm. go forward from there. But yeah, I think that there's way too much material that you would have possibly had um, if you're considering both of those as one. So yeah, I'm glad that they ultimately decided to split it up rather than make it a super long movie. Yeah, me too. Um, In the sense that I I think, you know, obviously uh, trying to in any way truncate, uh, you know, what they're trying to do in the first place might have added uh, to and neither of the the sequels being fulfilling. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that they did not do that. Um, So one thing, I guess, you know, with this movie that is really interesting is the fact that it is truly a part two in the sense that there's really no clear end and clear beginning or clear beginning and clear end, as it were, with this movie. Because like you said, it literally picks up from the, the first movie and then it ends and there's no real clear ending to the movie. There's just, we're legitimately about to go into part three. Uh, in fact, what plays is a trailer for <laughs> part three. Um, and so how, just with this movie overall, how do you feel about that? Do you wish that they had found a way for you know this film specifically, part two, to be more... Um, closed in the sense that it felt a little more cohesive to itself or or does it not matter to you i think it's actually better that it didn't become more closed because if you think about it too as part of a you know trilogy it's really interesting how something with time travel then makes that even better to not close it off as its own singular story, because then you're also saying you can't really tell where in time it's beginning and ending because yeah, we know initially the first movie started in 1985, but there's so much back and forth after that, that you're like, well, did it actually start with doc Brown going back to 1885 and then everything happened after that? You know, it just raises all these questions then about time travel, which is just going to drive you bonkers. But I think that that makes it cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, 
I think I'm a little bit on the other side that I wish the movie had felt a little more contained. Um, and and so uh, one of their reference points was Star Wars films, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, even though The Empire Strikes Back obviously picks up with where you kind of leave off, but there's been some time that passes. Uh, and You can tell that. And then... It ends, and it you know obviously there's going to be a, a we're we're leading into a third part, but it does feel like it tells kind of a a more complete story. I do personally wish that it the movie had felt more complete in and of itself, um, because to me it's like part two. It doesn't. You feel like you want to watch the third one immediately, just so you can see the conclusion, because you, there mm-hmm. doesn't really feel, and you don't feel any conclusion to the story at all. You really are left on a cliffhanger of, you know, oh, what's going to happen? And so, you know, uh, it it can be a detriment, but it also. I think, you know, for others it can work. So for me, I think it's a little bit more of a detriment than something I really uh, like about the movie. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's one of the things that kind of puts this to me where it's a sequel that definitely, and I'll just be honest right up front, it doesn't live up for me to the first movie at all. Mm-hmm. I I can see how people would feel that way and why you would feel that way. I For me... It does because it follows along more from the the original, which we all adored so much. And so I think that that familiarity made me happy throughout. The, the main thing that bothered me about this part was um, with Biff, I felt like it was a little too overacted. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean... This was also, I mean, because this is the second part, they really did follow that pattern that you kind of started with uh, Empire, uh, and and I mean Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back, as well as, of course, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, where the second film is quite a bit darker than the first. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's really interesting that all a lot of these... Uh, 80s films and and big 80s trilogies really had these you know much darker uh you know second acts to them um and you know with indy that's because lucas is going through a divorce at the time that he's writing he's kind of in a a more depressed state of mind as he's writing and everything and so that's the lends itself the story being darker uh i think just empire uh, obviously that mm-hmm. that story you know lucas is is working on a classic structure where the second act is always darker so it's basically you know the the night is always darkest just before the dawn type of thing right and you know that's kind of what we get here because the the you know the the movie ends of course with uh doc still being alive um uh, but back in you know 1886 um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I could have uh, the date off just by a few years there. But um, so we we end at that place, and so there's like this ray of hope, like that things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you have no idea how they're going to make it back. Right. Well, and I I think that 
going with that structure was a good idea because you've seen how, like you were saying with the way that Lucas has used that, that going in this format can give you something that the audience is grabbing onto that they're hoping that the hero is going to get through. And so Mm -hmm. I, I think that that really um, is a big selling point. And then two, I was reading and seeing that, you know, behind the scenes, Gail was really left to write a lot more of this screenplay without Zemeckis because Zemeckis was working on another mm-hmm. project. Um, yeah, he's doing Roger Rabbit at the time. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, he actually said that he wanted to um, work on, you know, working with the, the other crew members to make it even similar f- in the future scenes to Blade Runner, but not so foggy and chromed out, I guess is what he said. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it, they didn't want it to be absolutely the worst thing ever and very like cold and impersonal but they still wanted it to seem like a frightening place yeah uh, and one of the things that i thought was really interesting too is that that as they're writing he comes back and he hands to mechas his original draft um and it had them going to the 60s instead of back to the original movie time period right um and they decided, you know, Zemeckis was like, wouldn't it be cooler if we went and saw the second movie or the, you know, the second movie went back to the first movie and we saw it all from a new perspective. So the script went through a lot of changes just as it did the first time. Um, and, you know, those aren't the only changes that we get here because we have some some cast changes that end up happening. Um, and I think probably the biggest in the sense of uh a part that they had written a larger and then had to make it smaller uh, and find a way to hide the fact that it was a different person was the fact that Crispin Glover just wanted way too much money. Mm-hmm. And so they cast him and then they turn him upside down and put him on all that makeup. So the people wouldn't really realize that it was a different actor. And honestly, the guy does such a good job that I really can't tell much of a difference. Um, right. Especially for what the role that they give him. I mean, it, you know, I think uh, Jeffrey Wiseman does such a good job of pulling off a lot of the mannerisms that Crispin Glover had. And again, they just, they nailed it. You put somebody upside down and in a bunch of makeup anyway, and it's going to be hard to tell that that's not the same person. Exactly. Well, and and I especially noticed even in the um, different perspective of the high school dance that Jeffrey's haircut was supposed to look like George McFly's and it was Mm -hmm. spot on. And then even uh, they briefly switched to, you know, Marty is looking through the door at them talking to his other self and they almost show you George's face, but they zoom out and show you Biff and Marty looking at each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they do a really good job of, of I think, working around it and making it work. Um, and, you know, in the end, what's great about this is this is not a movie uh, about George McFly. Really, this is this movie is a lot has a lot more to do with, you know, with his mom. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, again, the way they structured the script in the end really benefits them um, and it doesn't really hurt them in any way. And then, uh, you know, 
sadly, uh, Claudia Wells was signed to return. She was going to return, and she has to turn down this role um, to come back because her mother was diagnosed with cancer, and she basically put her whole career on hold um, for that, you know, and didn't act for quite a long time. She quit acting so she could take care of her family, which, you know, I... Of all the reasons, you know, to quit acting, you know, to take care of family, I think is is the the best reason. It's it's the one that nobody can fault her for, um, you know, mm-hmm. and and so it's I think it's commendable that she wouldn't even think twice about, um, you know, what this might cost her in her future or whatever. You know, she knew exactly what the right thing to do was, um, and and that was family, and I think that's really commendable. Yeah, I actually didn't know that that was the reason I just saw she had said personal reasons. So that even more gives me respect for her. Because I mean, at the end of the day, fame is not going to be there for you in your difficult times in life. It's going to be the people that you care about. So yeah, I mean, she absolutely made the right decision. And I mean, for the average viewer, I would say most people probably didn't notice that big of a difference, uh, especially since they started from the last scene from the first movie and even tried to style the clothing and the hair the same on Elizabeth's shoe. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that she did that. Well, and of course, the, I mean, again, they do themselves a huge favor in that the way that they write the script is that you know she doesn't have a ton to do this movie isn't about her at all uh Mm -hmm. her and marty it's it's really uh about you know what um is going on between you know um marty and doc and so i think uh you know they use her to the best of their advantage um and Again, like you said, they do a great job with with the hair and makeup. So they're really, um, you know, making her uh, look a lot like Claudia Wells. Um, they, you know, they gave her very similar hairdo. Uh, she's wearing all the same clothes, mm-hmm. um, and you know, yes, they do not look the same, same, but it's close enough. Um, and and I think it works, you know. And so I'll be interested again because I haven't seen the third one in quite a while to kind of see you know, what her part is. And, and from what I remember, I think it's pretty small too, because I don't think we see her again until Marty gets back and everything's okay. And he's waking her up, uh, on the, uh, swing, the, the, the swing that they put her on. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, 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 you know, it's always unfortunate in a movie you have to take, you know, you have to take these type of measures, um, but it's Hollywood and it happens, you know? So, yeah. uh, Hey, it's just happened to, um, the fantastic B series, you know, they're, they're replacing right. Johnny Depp, you know, because of things that, uh, that are going on in his life and the studios decided to go another direction. So, um, you know, these are, these are definitely things that happens and gosh, Harry Potter is another good example in the sense that, you know, Richard Harris died. And, uh, so they had mm-hmm. to replace Dumbledore, you know, so, you know, that th- th- stuff happens, uh, and, and, you know, you just roll with it. So, um, yeah. and, you know, I, I did want to add to, even though the situation with Crispin Glover is unfortunate and, you know, we feel like he was in the wrong for asking what he was asking because he wanted to be paid the same amount of money as actors that were way more established than he was at the time. And that's just not fair. Um, but 
the lawsuit that he won did actually set a good precedent for future actors with the Screen Actors Guild creating this clause that uh, producers and actors um, are not allowed to use uh, someone's likeness without their consent. So, I mean, I, I would want that. I mean, because they're using your face to make money and not paying you for it. So that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting that those those clauses hadn't existed then. But it makes sense. I mean, too, mm-hmm. um, because you're you're able to use the medium in ways that people had never thought possible before. I think, you know, this is definitely a movie that really pushed some technology boundaries in the sense that um you know they have michael j fox playing so many different roles in the movie Mm -hmm. at one time on the screen at the same time and so you know when he's playing his son and his daughter and his future self all in one shot they were having to figure out the ways to make all that type of thing work um, and so, and of course, reusing footage from the previous movie um, in in a very clever way, and at the same time, you know, uh, interweaving brand new footage and all. So, yeah, this is a movie that's you know pushing some boundaries in that sense. You know, we're really trying to um, see what we can do filmmaking wise. You know, today it's much easier for them to do that. You know, obviously, Forrest Gump made that possible in the sense of inserting somebody into old footage and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, this was a much different time. A lot of those technologies didn't even exist yet. So they're flying by the seat of their pants pretty much with this one. Um, you mentioned, you know, earlier, we travel to the future, the past, and then the way past. And then, of course, we have an alternate past. So um, the, you mentioned the future and the fact that, you know, they 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 looked at the idea of Blade Runner um but they wanted to kind of push past that, like you said. And so you you really do get this very um, over-the-top, crazy... Like, they, they legitimately didn't want the future to look believable, they said, because they never do. And so they basically just kind of went for zany and insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if that's your goal, you definitely pulled it off. Um, because... Uh, for me personally, I really dislike the future part of this film, and part of it is because <laughs> they went so insane. Like, it just—it's so ridiculous. It's hard to take any of it seriously, and I kind of wish that they had grounded it more uh, with their design work, just because you know the. I feel like it would have helped me like care that I don't want this future to happen. You know, if it had been a little bit less ridiculous, mm-hmm. like, and even just, I, I felt like the way that they did Marty's character, like that for him to be somebody who all of a sudden doesn't like people to call him chicken. Like, that yeah. seems like a very strange, like, so all of this stuff wrapped up in this future didn't really work for me and a lot of that came from like where they took the characters but also just where they took the world and i mean i i don't care that they have flying cars or whatever i think uh, you know whatever um but just the whole aesthetic of it just looked like the 80s threw up and yeah we called that the future i can definitely agree with you on that i mean even just showing 
Marty's neighborhood, Leona States versus the neighborhood he always wanted to live in. You know, we all as a kid, I'm sure had those neighborhoods we saw in town. They're like, oh, Hilldale, like that's the, you know, affluent neighborhood. (laughs) Wish I lived there. Uh, And, you know, even Hilldale in his future is not the best neighborhood. And then his former neighborhood has bars on the windows. And um, I think they went too far, too, with having cars crashed into each other on the side of the street and on fire and the chalk outlines of people that had been murdered in the street. I was like, okay, you're making me just not like this at all in a really bad way. Like, it's just really depressing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I I affectionately called the uh, the alternate past Biff Strikes Back. The that's the Biff Strikes Back era, you know, right? Like, um, and you know, he's he's changed the past for himself, and it, it you know the the future had this weird. I I mean. It's hard to describe it because there's there's no one thing that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels really, I don't it just feels really odd. All the dis, uh, all the design choices they made there, and and then you know when you go back to the alternate future, it feels like you know Vegas on steroids. You know, yes. where like you said, everything is just. Absolutely. Like the old neighborhood he used to live in his old house. You know, it's it looks like uh, it looks like escape from New York more than it looks like anything that could possibly even be, you know, or, or yeah. you know, honest or um, gosh, I think when they filmed escape from New York, um, you know, those old parts of um, was it St. Louis that they had filmed those in? If I remember remembering the back behind the scenes stuff there of, of places that they had never fixed up and they just looked like that. That, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like. And it just looks, but it's again, it's so over the top that it, um, and it's pushing reality so much that I, I don't know if I care quite as much about them alleviating the this uh this past and wanting them to change it just because it feels so utterly ridiculous it it Mm -hmm. i don't know it 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 pushes credulity for me to the point of like uh insanity right you just look at it and go this would not happen this way it's too preposterous to happen and then to you know you feel like well they'll probably be able to get out of this anyway. Right. So. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, both the future and the alternate past that we go to, they feel so outrageous and outlandish that it's like, well, of course this isn't what we're going to end up with. Mm-hmm. So it almost, you know, maybe if you had reined things in a little bit, people would have been more worried that this is what you're going to end up with. Right. Yep. One hundred percent. Yeah. Well, and it's it's so interesting because Leah Thompson said uh, I was watching the extras and she loved playing this part. Um, she she really enjoyed the uh, you know where this character went and and how fun it was to play. And I mean, she has the world's worst prosthetic piece yes. I've ever seen on her chest. Um, just it doesn't look real at all. Um, 
I've I've seen more reality in an episode of Baywatch. Uh, and well, especially when you do so much aging in the face and neck, yeah, but not the yeah. chest. It's like, well, that just, no, they don't match. <laughs> well, I guess she had had some work done there too. So like, that's <laughs> the point is everything looks plastic. Um, yeah, it just, th- but I, what I thought was interesting is, and, and I think the way that she plays it of being this woman who, you know, I got the feeling like, and I kind of wish that we had gotten more on this about her, is you got the feeling like you know her husband dies, George dies, you know, and and we mm-hmm. find out obviously he's been shot by Biff, uh, and she doesn't know that, but um, so he's died, and you almost feel like that she's kind of gotten married to Biff because maybe she's trying to take care of her kids, and she doesn't have mm-hmm. the opportunity to do that in any other way, and and this is the life she's had to put up with to try and do that, you know, this philandering husband, um, you know kids that have turned out yeah abusive kids that have kind of turned out awful anyway uh you know and so yeah her life has just turned to absolute crap she's her her life has turned into the cesspool she lives in basically it it surprises me though that she was so excited to play that but i guess you know it was a a totally different kind of thing than she got to play you know with the cute suburban mom in the first movie so eh, right i mean maybe that's why um but yeah she does it so well still that it definitely makes me sad for her character no i absolutely agree i mean i i do feel for the character i do feel for what's happened to her and 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 i think it is um it is something that is sad to watch uh, a character have you know kind of descended this far um and i think that's the one part of that's the one piece the reality honestly in that because you can kind of see how you know there are women who end up in those situations right you mm-hmm. know and i think there's a reality that of of ending up with a guy who just doesn't care about you is going to tr- ends up treating you like dirt um and so yeah absolutely I thought that it was interesting, though, even though they were saying that they wanted the future to be ridiculous and everything, um, because futures that they've seen in other films never are. And yet they ended up unintentionally predicting a lot of the developments in technology that we have now. Did you notice that? Like drones, for example, that could take photos of people and, you know, share it with someone. Uh, or, yeah, I mean, the, or picture-in-picture picture, uh, video, you know. Um, fingerprint or, technology. Yep, yep. Uh, being able to, you know, communicate, you know, through television, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 we right, can like do that today. Right, like video chatting. You know, yep. video chatting, yep. As uh, we're that doing. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, as we literally have that happening right now. Uh, so... As we record this episode. So, yeah, you know, there are definitely some things I think, you know, that they they do really well um, with that weird alternate past. And, and then even with the, the future, of course, like you said. Uh, and of course, you know, everybody loves the hoverboard. So uh, which not my favorite part of the movie. Um, really? You didn't want to ride one? Uh, well, I was never a skateboarder anyway. Um, it almost reminds me more of a snowboard, though. Because yeah. it feels more like it would be like snowboarding. Like, have you ever snowboarded in deep powder? 
that almost makes me feel uh, the sense of what it might be to be on a hoverboard. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's an okay gimmick. I mean, and, and, and it's relatively fun. Um, I think to, it is so close to so much of what they did in the first movie with the skateboard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get that they're trying to be the same, but different. Um, but it, it I mean, it's just not, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say in all of this is just, this movie just never, to me, completely really finds its footing to um, do what I think they want it to do. And I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I think that's okay. You know, everybody's not going to respond to things uh, in a similar fashion. And I just, for, for me, a lot of this stuff, I'm just not responding to as well. I think the section that works best for me is actually when they go back to 1955 and you really are playing around with that first film from a different perspective. And that to me is, is it is actually groundbreaking what they're doing um, where you're really playing. And I think that's the part that actually works the best in this movie, because all of the tension there really it's reality, right? All the tension Mm -hmm. we're playing with again, this is where I think this part works as I mentioned earlier, those other places didn't feel real, but because we've already seen all the consequences of what could happen um, if the original movie didn't play out, you know, we we know Marty dies, right? Right. And so now you're playing with, you can't mess up what you've already done, but you've had another mission too. So all of that, I think, plays well because we already understand all of those stakes from the first movie. Whereas the other sections don't really give us the stakes that I think make it make a lot of sense um, in the sense that it just feels too ridiculous and outlandish. This feels so real and it feels, um, you know, so grounded. And I think they pull it off really beautifully and all and I would say pretty seamlessly. So I give them full props for this section of the movie. I'm definitely with you as well. I think that it was really cool, especially, uh, I, I think I love the jokes about Marty being told to wear something inconspicuous and he comes out in like a leather jacket and a fedora like he's, right. you know, a detective. <laughs> like all those old, like, spy Dick movies. Or, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, really? Uh, but yeah, you do really feel the stakes because of what we saw before, as well as now you're adding another layer to it. You know, it's not only now that they're going back to fix another problem, but they're having to avoid their past selves of two different time points that are all now in the same timeline. So I I like that added layer of there are two of you now (laughs) with the now third of you who are in the same place and you've got to not run into each other. So, yeah, I think that that was really cool. Definitely was groundbreaking with the way ILM worked on um, imposing the third of each of them into the scenery from the first movie. So that was actually really cool to hear about. Um, And I I think that the car chases that they did with Biff, I really want to give a shout out to that because that's my favorite thing from the whole movie. Yeah, I think um, I think that car chase at the end, uh, it it feels pretty good, Um, you know, and and that's where I think uh, the hoverboard really came uh, into its own. I thought that was really smart. Um, 
and a really good use of the hoverboard. Um, you know, you're not feeling quite so like, oh, I've seen this before. This felt like a really good um, use uh, and thought process for. Okay, how do we like how do we take the potential of the hoverboard and really utilize that? I thought they did it really well uh, in that mm-hmm. scene. So absolutely. Um, and then I thought when they do go back to the original movie and, you know, have um, him land with the manure again, you know, that's that's funny to me that that's more clever. And so I, mm-hmm. I really liked that a lot. So less zany and more grounded and repeating mm-hmm. something yep. in a, you know, yep. ironic way. Yes. Uh, no, perfect. Yeah, definitely. That, that irony, I think really works well there. Um, I also, you know, you mentioned earlier and I thought it'd be, uh, we should probably talk about, you know, uh, Thomas Wilson. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right that one of the things I, I I wish that they had done is that I think he does, like you said, he overplays the role. He kind of overacts the role in a way that makes it, uh, to me personally, less menacing than it could be if he was slightly more serious in it. Um, you know, I get him being like goofy and weird as old Biff, Mm-hmm. But when you go back to that alternate time period, I feel like it would be more menacing if Biff didn't feel quite so dumb. You mean uh, when they're back to the original 1955 timeline, right? Um, No, I mean like when they go back to 1985, but the alternate 1985. Oh, I, feel I like, got you. Yeah. When yeah, he's the I feel bully. like he... Right. I feel like he's he just overacts that too much for me mm-hmm. to to have the menace that he could have had if he he just underplayed it a little bit more. Um I think that would have made it a lot scarier. Um and again, I think the word I think of is like I just it would have been more menacing. Um whereas, you know, he just kind of he he's digging so much into playing it so big that I I kind of lose I guess some of the effect that they're going for. Yeah, well, I think it's even just hard to watch because he's being so animated with his facial expressions and with his body movements and then also trying to alter his voice. Uh, it just doesn't work for me, especially in those scenes where he's supposed to be, you know, like a Mad Max gangster kind of character. All of that on top of it, it, you're exactly right, doesn't make it at all seem like a threat. It's more just completely ridiculous, like the setting that we're in. And he's Mm -hmm. got his henchmen. And then they, you know, have the ultra hoverboard that he can hook three people onto. (laughs) It just yeah. they're adding too yeah. much icing on this cake that's already not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think in the future and in the alternate past, both places, he just overplays it completely. And it just doesn't really work um for me. And I think again, that's something that we mentioned earlier is it just 
there you're overplaying um, your hand so much with the unreality of what we're we're watching that even just the performance there ends up hurting as well. You know, whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like in the first movie, you know, Biff is obnoxious and everything, but he's not so over the top. Because even when they go back to 1955, too, like he's so over the top with how he's pursuing her on the street and like lifting up her skirt and like screaming at her. Yeah, in the street (laughs) about how he's going to marry her. And I was like, none of this feels real. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. Like, that was the one section I felt like of the behind, I mean, of being back in 1955 that didn't quite work because that's where you just took it to a level where it's like, okay, this is this is just getting silly. Well, and I mean, it, it even kind of made me laugh on the rewatch. Like, he's yelling, you're, you're going to marry me, you're going to be my wife. Like, that is a threat. And it just seemed so comical to me. Like, that's how you threaten somebody? I mean, I guess if you're, you know, abusive and stuff, then yeah. But it, at first, listen, it makes you laugh. You know, um, I, there's one thing that I was thinking of, though, that I just kind of like thematically. And I think that this movie does a, a good job of being able to show the way in which our actions have consequences and the consequences of our actions and the things that we do now have a ripple effect in the future. And this kind of, um, it gives you a very silly way of being able to see that. But I think that's actually helpful, you know, because a lot of times we just don't necessarily think as critically and clearly about the decisions that we make that can have massive impacts, you know, um, on our lives. And, and this movie does that in a very goofy off the you know wall kind of way but in some ways i kind of think that that can be helpful for us to see because yes they're overplaying their hand but at the at the same time it does let you kind of live that fantasy of like what happens if i make this decision you know and then you, you even at the end um we see uh the fact that the paper you know immediately changes right you know and i i think that's that's something that's kind of smart, um, and I appreciate that that this movie did have something that I could kind of pull from it that way, um, and be like, uh, you know, that's actually it. It's like makes me want to kind of like think about you know what I do a little bit more, you know, because even even little things can have a massive impact on your future. Yeah, I think that that's a really great takeaway and something that I notice as well, especially that, you know, in the very beginning, the thing that they're trying to prevent is Marty's son getting arrested and then that leading to him spending most of his life in prison. And I mean, that right there will completely just take years away from your life. That is the the worst possible thing aside from dying, you know, to my in my opinion. Um, so I think for sure they're showing you that small decisions like that, that you think are small, at least at the time, can change things drastically for the future of your life. So, you know, if he had said he was out, then maybe things would have been okay and they wouldn't have had to come back and try to fix it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the the whole point of this is uh, trying to prevent uh, your child from making mistake. Um the child he doesn't even know yet for making mistake that like you said could cost him 
basically his life, you know, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll cost him all the best years of his life, uh, in prison. Um, and you know, I think that it's, it's those small things that we, we don't necessarily think could, could be, um, the thing that ruins everything. Uh, and yet this, this really does help us see that. And I, I think that's great, you know, um, to, and, and it's just, again, like, the, I don't think the movie itself really makes a huge deal of that, but I think it, it does kind of, it doesn't have to tell us because it keeps showing us these things kind of over and over again, which I think is really good. And we've talked about that before of like how, you know, movies need to show, not tell. And this mm-hmm. movie continually shows the the uh, consequences of, of actions that, you know, can lead to really desperate and dangerous places. So... Yeah, you know, I, I think that's that's nice that even in in this all this craziness and zaniness, I can still find you know something that's kind of worth taking away from. Which you know, and not every movie has to do that, but it's kind of nice that even this movie does. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I, and and I do think that in addition to that, I mean, it sort of piggybacks with that point. Them showing the Vegas scenes to me also. Maybe it wasn't designed this way, but could be considered a commentary about like sort of the the sadness of the situation of Las Vegas in reality that we know right now. Because I have to say, like my last time visiting there, although there are the cool parts of it, there's definitely a huge disparity from the average working class living situation versus the Las Vegas Strip. There are actually places that have bars on the windows right down the street, you know, and and so I think that that really in this movie took me back to that and thinking it's sad and I wish that that could be changed. And so, you know, I I think it kind of adds that element of talking about greed and gambling and how it can lead to this. Um, it doesn't work, you know, and, and you're absolutely right in the sense that this movie kind of, um, in, in a most ridiculous way, shows us how that doesn't mm-hmm. work. Um, and at the same time, you know, we can think of the actual reality of, of how those type of places don't really work long term, you know, um, you, you can, and, and, and how you can't live like that. Um, and it, and be happy. And I think, you know, again, as ridiculously crazy as mm-hmm. this, you know, that section is, um, we do see that honestly, none of those people are happy. You know, no one is happy in those scenes. You know, uh, Biff, even though he would say he's happy, he's not happy. You know, um, uh, we, we see Lorraine, mm-hmm. she's obviously not happy. Um, you know, nobody's happy in these scenes, even, you know, the Marty of that universe, mm-hmm. um, that, that alternate universe, he's not happy, you know, so, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's all comes down to the way people have chosen to live. And so, um, you can't just make up your, all your own rules really no. in the end and expect to be happy. So it's just, it's not the way it works. So yeah, that's a really good point as well. I, I think interesting to see how both of those kind of like come together under mm-hmm. that di- idea of like consequences, you know, how we choose to live and, and the decisions we make that impact how we end up living. So yeah, that's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm just really interested then for you to um, where you kind of end up landing with the movie 
ratings wise? So for me, I definitely think that it helped to look at this with the lens of I'm here for a fun ride again. Um, on the first watch and then on rewatching it a couple times, uh, I, I think that it is a fun ride, even though there's these little criticisms that we've said we had with the movie. Um, I still feel that there's something to take away and that ultimately the big thing I take away is that I still think it's fun. Even if everything doesn't work, I still have fun watching it and I would watch it again. So uh, I give it a three and a half out of five because I think that it's definitely above average, but you know, not perfect. Yeah. Um, I think for me, you know, this this movie doesn't live up to the predecessor. That's for sure. You know, it's not a sequel that's half as good, really, as yeah. its original. Um, and I think the 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 things that that hurt the movie for me, and we've already talked in depth about. Um, and so, in the end, I would say I would probably I give this about a three out of five, you know, and it's just a three out of five. It's almost like a two point five for me, really. Um, But I'll give it a three out of five. And Mm -hmm. part of that is because I did like that last section a lot. You know, like I think that kind of redeems some of the ridiculousness. uh, And and I think they really worked that Mm -hmm. out. And, of course, it leads into three, which I remember liking. So, as to this point, you know, I'll go with, with three out of five. So, um, Christy, I am interested, too, as now it is time for recommendations as to what you're going to be recommending to everybody this week. I have, I think, an especially cool one to recommend this week. And it's something a little bit different that uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen this week. But I uh, actually discovered an artist and I, I was looking through Target and happened upon a coloring book, you know, the more detailed they consider for adults. Um, yeah, my, love, my wife loves those. Yeah. And uh, so this is by an artist named, uh, and I may be butchering the pronunciation, but he's Filipino and his name is Kirby Rosans. R-O-S-A-N-E-S. And uh, he actually does these gorgeous really fantastical pen and ink drawings that are are then compiled into these coloring books and then also just art books and things too um and the one i have is called morphia and it's where it's basically or sorry color morphia and it's basically just animals heads then cascading off into like an explosion of other stuff Oh, okay. So like a bear head growling and then it morphs into looking like the shape generally of a bear, but it's filled in with all of these millions of tiny little other things. Oh, cool. So yeah, I I highly recommend checking out his art. And if you're interested at all in coloring for stress relief or uh, if you're, you know, like a colorist, which is a career. Um, it's really cool for that. And uh, he also references several colorists he worked with for the covers. So I, I highly recommend checking him out. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, for me, I'm going to recommend J.K. Rowling's new book, uh, The Ichabod. Uh, I loved it. Uh, it's a new fairy tale that she wrote that she uh, she had actually um, released all of the chapters one chapter at a time on line uh, 
as for everyone, uh, just for the for children to be able to read during the COVID lockdown season. Uh, and um, now it's been released as a book, and it's really cool because all of the art uh, in there is is uh, it was an art contest for children all over the world, um, and so all of the art in the book is is from those that won and their pictures are, are in the book as well. And, um, all of the proceeds are going to charity too. Uh, so it is not only, um, awesome in those ways. I thought it was a fantastic story. I think, um, she has written a very timely tale, uh, for our age. Um, and I, I think it's, uh, it's one, um, that's just important. You know, you it, children's books can be very important in that way and in the sense that they can have a lot to say. And I think J.K. Rowling has a lot to say. Uh, and I thought she said it well in this story. So I'm going to highly recommend that to all ages. So um, definitely mm-hmm. one that would even be good if you have kids to read together. So. But Christy, um, if anybody wants to catch up with you and uh, just see what's going on uh, with you elsewhere, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And of course, I hang out sometimes in the Babel Conference so we can talk about stuff from the show. And of course, uh, aside from the 602 Club, I also do a show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabers and Spells, where we talk about things from Harry Potter to Star Wars to Stranger Things. Uh, you know, of course, we're going to have a new season of Stranger Things at some point, we hope. So uh, maybe we'll throw some some of the Witcher season two in there. Who knows? Awesome. Uh, and of course, you could find me on Matt Rushing Zero Two under almost every you know social media platform out there. If 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 it's a social media for platform, just search for Matt Rushing Zero Two, uh, and if I'm there, you'll find me. Uh, and then, of course, you could find me uh, here on the network doing Literary Treks as well as the Orb. Literary Treks is about the books and comics of Star Trek, and the Orb is about Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. And then I'm doing uh, two shows over on the Nerd Party Network. One is called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman. Uh, we're talking about each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And uh, honestly, I think we have, if I'm remembering correctly, I think at this point we have about 17 episodes left of the series. So wow. I can't believe it. Um, and then doing aggressive negotiations with john mills each and every week talking about a new star wars topic it's a star wars podcast and it's so much fun um and in fact um as we're recording this uh this coming week we're going to be recording our annual thanks gungan episode which every year we talk about the things we are thankful for in star wars because you know what you just need more positivity out there so hope you'll join us over there but uh christy um just want to say thank you to everybody for joining us. We really appreciate it. And y'all come back now you hear. here.